Welcome to the China and the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by Carnegie China, hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome back to Carnegie China's China and the World podcast. I'm delighted to welcome my friend uh, Ali Wine to discuss his new book, America's Great Power Opportunity. Revitalizing U.S. foreign policy to meet the challenges of strategic competition. It's a terrific read, and I encourage our listeners to to read it. It's also very timely given the topics we find ourselves discussing today. Before I d- dive into the interview with Ali,、uh, let me first give a little bit of an introduction.、Uh, Ali is a senior analyst with Eurasia Group's global macro geopolitics practice. He focuses on U.S.-China relations and great great power competition. Um, we've been fortunate to have Ali contribute a number of articles to the Carnegie Endowment over the years,、uh, as well as、uh, participating in our China in the World podcast.、Uh, earlier in his career, Ali served as a junior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace.、Uh, he was also a research assistant at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard, and a policy analyst at the Rand Corporation. He's been a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security, and a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute. He's a member of Council on Foreign Relations, a David Rockefeller Fellow with the Trilateral Commission, and a Security Fellow with the Truman National Security Project. Ali, it's terrific to have you back with us on China in the World podcast, and I'm looking forward to discussing your new book. Paul, it's great to be back.、Uh, really a pleasure to be on and engaging with you, and looking forward to our conversation. Well, as I said to our listeners right up front, we're going to talk about your new book again. The title: America's Great Power Opportunity: Revitalizing U.S. Foreign Policy to Meet the Challenges of Strategic Competition.、Uh, it's a great topic,、um, and it was published by Polity Press、uh, in this year. It's hot off the presses.、Um, I found it、uh, highly engaging and insightful. And again, I recommend it to anyone interested in U.S. foreign policy, global affairs, geopolitics. It grapples really with what I would say are some of the more important questions、uh, in U.S. foreign policy today.、Uh, for example, what do we mean when we say strategic competition? Right? What what is the U.S. competing for?、Uh, what would a durable strategic arrangement, for example, with China and Russia entail? Uh, and your book gets into that,、uh, and I hope you and I can talk a, a little bit about some of those topics、uh, during our podcast here. But first,、um, Ali, why don't you just start out if you could by talking about you know what motivated you to write the book? What gaps were you trying to fill, if any, in the policy debate? What were some of the main takeaways that that you kind of hope our readers、uh, will draw from? Top line takeaways. Well, first of all, Paul.、Uh- It's it's wonderful to be back with you on the podcast, and and thank you so much for、uh, for the generous words. They really really mean a lot to me coming from you. So it's a real pleasure to be with you again. So、uh, just a few a few thoughts in response to your questions. So in terms of the the impetus for for writing the book, the、uh, frankly the impetus was my own ignorance, and I I first conceived of this book as an attempt to at least partially redress my ignorance. And what I mean is that this is now. You know, late 2019. So I, I first began writing the book in earnest in late 2019, and at that time, of course,、uh, great power competition was and remains, of course, but、uh, it had very quickly become ubiquitous, especially with the publication of 
the Trump administration's national security strategy in late 2017, and then a month later, uh, the release of its national defense strategy in, in January of 2018. And those two yeah. documents really took a construct that had been gaining some momentum in scholarly circles and in policymaking circles. But with those two documents, the term really achieved escape velocity. And so I said, well, as somebody who's interested in in U.S. foreign policy, who's interested in geopolitics, I better get a handle on this term. And what I found was when I engaged various interlocutors who were commenting on great power competition, I found a gap between the ubiquity of the term on the one hand and the underspecification of the term on the other hand. So mm-hmm. um, I, I wanted to try, I wanted to try if possible to uh, to bridge that gap between uh, ubiquity and underspecification and really figure out, um, one, what does this term mean? And two, uh, what are its implications for U.S. foreign policy? And I embarked on I embarked on a journey that produced uh, this short book, and I hope it can contribute a little bit to the conversation. But in one last, in terms of its takeaways, and then I'll stop. the The book tries to strike a, a quietly confident tone, a quietly optimistic tone. And what I mean is that I think that in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, and and perhaps between the end of the Cold War uh, and the onset of the global financial crisis in 2008. I think it's fair to say that perhaps the pendulum swung too far in the direction of complacency about the strategic environment. Um, But as with any pendulum, there's a risk of overcorrection. And I fear that perhaps the pendulum is now swinging too much in the direction of consternation. Um, What I argue in the book is that China and Russia, they are formidable competitors. They are multifaceted competitors. And I think they are competitors that are likely to endure. I don't think that they, I don't think that they are poised to experience a dramatic Soviet-style disintegration. So they they are here to stay as enduring competitors. But I think that they're in different ways. I think that they're emerging as self-limiting competitors. So I I think that if the United States can proceed with quiet confidence, uh, finding this intermediate disposition between complacency and consternation, and if it focuses on renewing uh, its numerous sources of competitive advantage, some of which are unique, I think that it'll be all right. Well, that's a great uh, synopsis uh, of your book, and and uh, you mentioned, of course, uh, China and Russia play a big, big part of your book as well. Um, given this new phrase, which has entered, uh, as you say, is quite ubiquitous, the strategic competition, which is describes the current set of dynamics. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the China-Russia partnership. Um, as you know, at Carnegie, I mean, this is not, uh, I mean, it's it's come, gained much more salience in the wake of uh, the war in Ukraine. Of course. Uh, but, you know, we, we and I know you have been, we've been watching this for quite some time. With regard to China and Ukraine, uh, you know, there's an ongoing debate about the degree of alignment between the two powers um, and the potential for it to get even stronger um, and how each of those two countries challenges the U.S. and its national interests in different ways. In your book, Ali, you refer to the China-Russia partnership as a limited entente, uh, which I uh, found an interesting uh, phrase, somewhat more restrained, of course, than the way it's talked about today with this no-limits strategic partnership, uh, of course, after the February 4th joint statement between Putin and Xi, in your view, uh, what makes China-Russia partnership a limited entente? Talk a little bit about what you mean by that. And how do the respective challenges posed by China and Russia, how are they different? Um, and in your view, is the China-Russia partnership going to grow stronger uh, or weaker in the wake of the war in Ukraine? Sure. So I think that 
the Sino-Russian relationship is is kind of a paradox, and I think that that paradox has has grown more apparent uh, you know, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in late February, and it's paradoxical in that I would argue that it is simultaneously today stronger, but also more strained. Um, it's stronger, I think, kind of by default. So Russia, having now been substantially, uh, and perhaps you know, for the medium run, so long as as President Putin is at the helm of Russia, uh, irreparably uh, severed from from the West. I think that Russia is, by default, more beholden to China than it was prior to its invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that it's stronger in that you know Russia, by by virtue of its own strategic miscalculation, has driven itself you know further into China's embrace. It's more beholden to China, yeah. and China obviously recognizes that given you know given Russia's you know economic you know difficulties right now, that China can extract concessions on on imports, particularly of energy. So. Um, it's stronger in that regard, uh, and certainly, at least publicly, you know, China is doubling down on its narrative that rather than focusing on on Russian aggression, China, at least publicly, is doubling down on uh, faulting NATO, particularly the United States, and saying that you know, you know NATO shouldn't have expanded in the aftermath of the Cold War, that uh, the NATO has been insufficiently accommodating of Russia's uh, legitimate security grievances, so on and so forth. So publicly, you know, China and Russia are. Um, you know, are, are doubling down rhetorically. Of course, they, their conversation about establishing payments mechanisms to circumvent the U.S. dollar, that uh, discussion mm-hmm. continues apace. Um, so so on, on one side of the ledger, certainly you know, stronger. Uh, turning to the other side of the ledger, why is it more strained? Um, I think that it's more strained for a few reasons. One, uh, obviously only, you know, only President Putin and President Xi sort of know, you know what they said to one another prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But if I were hypothesizing, uh, my hypothesis is that China probably did actually believe that Russia was either going to conduct a so-called special military operation that would be limited in scope, or that if Russia did actually launch a full-fledged invasion, that Ukraine would capitulate so quickly that the invasion would basically be over within a matter of days or weeks. It would be relatively bloodless and sufficiently short in duration that the West wouldn't have time to mobilize a response. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the war hasn't hasn't panned out in that way. So, the war is now uh, we're now over four months in. It exhibits every sign of grinding on and becoming a protracted war of attrition, uh, kind of you know, an unstable yeah. stalemate. And I don't think that China anticipated that it would go in that way. And the further you know, so the the longer the war drags on, and the more pronounced the externalities from the war become, I think that the more of a reputational albatross. This entente becomes around uh, China's neck. So, if you look at just as an example, I, I, and I think that his, um, I think that his opinion is certainly, um, I, I think a uh, a widely shared opinion among Chinese international relations scholars. But you know, look at you know Professor Yan Shuitong. You know, he writes an essay in Foreign Affairs recently. I think it was published in May, uh, May twenty fourth, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, he wrote an op ed in which he argued the externalities. They're having more of an economic impact on China. They're causing more reputational headaches for for China. Uh, they are further straining China's relations with the West, and those China's relations with the West are going to be far more consequential to China's long term strategic outlook than China's relationship with Russia. And China is in a difficult situation. It obviously it shares a number of grievances with China, with Russia. Um, it doesn't want to abandon Russia, but it recognizes that um, you know. And, and Evan Medeiros has obviously has talked about this policy trilemma facing China. How do you simultaneously, and here I'm, I'm just I'm just relaying uh, Evans's analysis, but how do you simultaneously 
uphold your commitment, at least nominal commitment, to sovereign sovereignty and territorial integrity. Right. Strengthen your partnership with Russia and also preserve your relationship or your relations with the West. That's a very, very difficult balancing act. So I think, yes, it is the rela- the relationship between China and Russia, it's stronger, but mm. I think that it's also more strained. And I think that some of those strains were even apparent, and I'll just make one more point and stop. Even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, right now, because Russia's invasion of Ukraine is, is rightly front and center, you know, we don't talk as much about uh, the way in which China and Russia responded to the geopolitical fallout of America's withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, but you saw some of those strains even after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And so uh, so China and Russia, yes, there was schadenfreude in both, uh, in both countries. But um, as that schadenfreude abated somewhat, um, China was thinking about how it, you know, China's thinking, okay, how can we mitigate instability coming from emanating from Afghanistan? How can we potentially advance our Belt and Road Initiative? Russia, on the other hand, says, hey, you know, Central Asia is is part of Russia's proper sphere of influence, and we're a little bit leery of China encroaching upon that sphere of influence. And importantly, where China wants to reduce the role that India plays in Central Asia's evolving security architecture, Russia wants to strengthen its security partnership with India. So even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, you already saw some signs of misalignment between China and Russia's preferences. But I think that now the longer the war goes on, the more difficult it's going to become for China to avoid that policy trilemma, rather. And so it's a I think it's a paradoxical relationship. Yeah, no, I think that, that all makes sense to me. I think, you know, your point about what what did China or China's leadership know? I suspect you're right. They thought it would be much more of a limited operation. Mm-hmm. In, in the Donbass region, which they probably could, you know, turn a blind eye to or not get too um, upset about. Uh, I think they were thrown off by the full scale invasion and the extent to which Putin went to. Um, And early on in some of my discussions with Chinese scholars, it was very clear that um, that was not seen in China's interest, that kind of full scale invasion, the, the extent to which Putin was was going and what he was trying to achieve. And many scholars said early on that they suspected they wouldn't be able to distance themselves from Russia, but over time, they expected that that may happen. Now, I also hear Chinese scholars talking about the fact that because of the U.S. strategic pressure on China, China's left with no choice but to align closer with Russia uh, and uh, the developing world. Uh, And in a sense, you hear discussion about a reorientation of Chinese uh, foreign policy leaning closer to, you know, leaning closer to Russia and the global South um, as a means of, you know, offsetting the pressure that they're getting from the United States. And we hear things from Chinese scholars saying because of that pressure, uh, we have no choice. So it'll be interesting. I mean, I think there are still some unanswered questions here. I think you're right that there's a lot of reasons why uh, this uh, uh, alignment with Russia is not in China's interest. Um, but when you hear Chinese experts saying, you know, we have no choice because of the U.S. strategic pressure, uh, this is all we're left with. What's your sense of how that's going to play out over time? Well, I think exactly as you said, and, and this is I, I think that this is a point that Nadej Roland made in a, in a recent foreign affairs piece talking about China's sort of approach to the global south. Um, I think that China recognizes that for the time being, so even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, China's relationships with advanced, with most advanced industrial democracies were either you know stagnating or declining. 
And I think that there was sort of a brief, there was a brief period in which I think a lot of those democracies, well, not a lot, all of those democracies were, were observing how China would respond to, to Russian aggression. Now, China, as far as we know, it hasn't, it hasn't provisioned any military support uh, to Russia. Uh, it hasn't overtly violated any you know, Western sanctions on, on Russia, but, but China hasn't, you know, it hasn't come out and condemned Russian aggression and it continues to, to shift the narrative as much as it possibly can uh, without violating the sanctions to support Russia economically. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so so my sense is that, you know, my sense is that China right now feels that it's uh, it's not going it, to it's not going to foreclose uh, diplomacy with the West. It's not going to foreclose economic engagement with the West. It can't in part because it's as much as it wants to achieve technological self-reliance. Uh, it's not in a position to achieve that self-reliance uh, wholly independently right now. It still depends very heavily on economic ties with the West. But I think increasingly, if so if, if, if I'm China and I look uh, and, and I look at my external environment, what do I see? I see that the Quad, which prior to I think the coronavirus pandemic had kind of been muddling along as one of these seeming uh, abstractions. So China sees that the Quad is the Quad is proceeding with clear momentum. Uh, China sees that South Korea and Japan, so South Korea obviously is not a member of the Quad, but South Korea is aligning itself more uh, with the Quad. Um, and there are signs of tentative, uh, incremental, halting, uh, thawing between Japan and South Korea. And historically, antagonism between Japan and South Korea has been one of the major uh, irritants to U.S. efforts uh, to, to rebalance to Asia. So, so if I'm China, I see that the Quad is gaining momentum. I see incipient signs of a thawing between Japan and South Korea. I see that the European Union is recalibrating its disposition mm-hmm. towards me in fundamental ways. And obviously, I see that my relationship with the United States is deteriorating on a bipartisan basis. And so the only major power relationship that China has that is either you know, stable or growing is with Russia. But as we've just discussed, the relationship with Russia is, I think, in many ways, is increasingly a liability. But um, China is in, in, is in a predicament when it comes to Russia. Even though its relationship with Russia, I think, is increasingly becoming a liability, China doesn't want Russia to become too weak. Uh, a, right. a, a Russia that is increasingly weak and that is prone to even more risk-taking behavior could cause even more headaches for China. So I think right. China wants to maintain um, China wants to maintain its partnership with Russia. And then to your point about the developing world, I think that China is increasingly recognizing that in order to offset pressure from advanced industrial democracies, it will have to. Uh, expand sort of the full range of efforts across the developing world. So I think that we will see, even though China is not pleased with with Russia's behavior, I think that China will will work to preserve this very fraught relationship with Russia. And I do think that it will, it will try to, on a multifaceted basis, uh, expand its influence across the developing world. Yeah. Well, in your book, um, you you talk about the current geopolitical environment uh, and you uh, compare that uh, to the environment which existed uh, during the Cold War uh, for much of the latter half of the 20th century. And in your book, I, I appreciated the nine reasons uh, as to why the Cold War is a poor analogy to describe the current challenges posed by a resurgent China and a revanchist Russia. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on why you think the Cold War is a poor analogy for U.S.-China, U.S.-Russia relations? And in that context, how should U.S. grand strategy differ now when compared with the Cold War strategy of containment? I hasten to note you know, in our conversation, and I tried to make this point in the book, that 
there are important lessons to be drawn from the Cold War. And I think that certainly you can understand the appeal of the analogy. Uh, and so I, I don't want to, uh, I certainly don't dismiss it out of hand. And, you know, the right. Cold War, it it furnishes America's sole post-war example of long-term strategic competition. And it seems that in dealing with China and Russia, that the United States is going to be dealing uh, dealing with competitive dynamics vis-a-vis China and Russia for, for a while to come. So there are right. important but I should say, you, you do talk about similarities in the book as well. I ask you to focus on the, the, the differences, but sure. you list sure. both. Books, sure, absolutely. I mean, so where to begin? So I would say the one critical difference is that now we can't we can't disclaim the possibility that China might implode in spectacular Soviet-style fashion. We can't disclaim the possibility that Russia will will implode in similar fashion. But I think that it seems unlikely. Uh, no. China and Russia, they've defied many prognostications of collapse. Uh, their regimes, while you know some observers would argue are increasingly brittle, have nonetheless proven uh, adaptable, and I think more adaptable and more resilient than many observers would have ventured. Um, so the Cold War uh, ended with a decisive victor and a decisive loser. Uh, the, the Soviet Union lost, the United States won. I think that with China and Russia, if one accepts the proposition or the hypothesis that they are likely to endure and avoid that kind of spectacular implosion, then America's task is not to achieve a decisive victory, but to pursue a strained cohabitation. And the pursuit of a strained cohabitation requires a very different kind of diplomacy. I think a much more patient diplomacy, a much more uh, perhaps unsatisfactory incremental diplomacy than than the than that which the United States pursued during the Cold War. So there's there's one I think important difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, I don't think you can overstate the importance of interdependence. Now that interdependence, it is being it's being recalibrated, it's being revisited, and obviously, particularly vis-a-vis China, the United States is uh, is pursuing selective disentanglement. Uh, but I think that it's notable that even with selective disentanglement, the the multiplicity of economic linkages between the United States and China is quite striking. So the United States and China in 2021, their two-way trade uh, in goods was roughly $100 billion higher than it was in 2019. Um, and in terms of sort of China's prospective detachment from the global economy, uh, the evidence just doesn't, thus far, doesn't bear out that hypothesis. So last year, uh, inbound uh, foreign direct investment into the mainland reached a record level, uh, $334 billion. China's exports reached a record level, $3.36 trillion. So the United States and China, even though the United States is focused much more on building up its self-reliance, China obviously is very vigorously pursuing its own self-reliance. Mm-hmm. They remain substantially intertwined economically in a way that the United States and the Soviet Union uh, were not. So I think that's another important difference. I also think that they're just the range and the range and number of interdependencies, um, or I should say the range of interdependencies, I think is significantly greater today than it was during the Cold War. So during the Cold War, I think that the United States and the Soviet Union, they were principally focused on uh, avoiding nuclear Armageddon. Uh, Mm. Today, uh, and I I talk a little bit about this point uh, in the afterward, I tried in the afterward, so I wrote the afterward uh, after Russia invaded Ukraine, and just given the, given just sort of the cruelty that that Russia is inflicting upon Ukraine, and given the deteriorating human rights landscape inside China, I understand viscerally, emotionally, the appeal of a hypothesis or a hypothetical scenario in which the United States could advance its vital national interests solely in alignment with like-minded countries. It could bypass China and Russia, and it could pursue a foreign policy that was purely, you know, values-driven, for better or for worse. Um, I can't 
I can't convince myself that there is a tenable scenario in which the United States can advance its vital national interests on the full panoply of transnational challenges without some modicum of interaction with China and Russia. So whether you're talking about mitigating climate change, mitigating Mm -hmm. macroeconomic instability, mitigating pandemic disease, and we could go on and on. But is there a realistic scenario in which the United States can advance its vital national interests without a baseline of diplomacy with China and Russia? I think as far as I can tell, the answer is no. So I think that there are a number of there are a number of differences, you know, and one last difference is I think that today's geopolitics is going to be a lot more fluid and a lot messier. Uh, mm-hmm. And so during the Cold War, yes, there was a substantial non-aligned movement. Um, but if you think about sort of kind of the nerve centers of power, if you think about the major powers during the, you know, during the Cold War period, it was very difficult for the major powers during the Cold War period to kind of double deal. So for major powers to have some interaction with the United States, to have some interaction with the Soviet Union. I think if you look at major powers, and they were primarily concentrated in the West, um, the bifurcation uh, was pretty rigid. I think that today, by contrast, um, (laughs) even among democracies, even among advanced industrial democracies, even though they are, yes, they are increasingly aligned against China and Russia, but in many important ways, they continue to engage with China and Russia. So look at I think India is an important example. So India, bilaterally with the United States and under the auspices of the Quad, it is certainly uh, moving much more vigorously, much more openly and and intentionally to align itself with the United States to contest China, but it's not abandoning its relationship with Russia. And I suspect that many other major powers are going to engage in similar kinds of calculations. So align with the United States to contest China and Russia's influence selectively but maintain a baseline of interaction with China and Russia in other ways to, to preserve their own vital national interests. And so I think it all adds up to, I think, a, a messier picture, a more fluid picture. But I think that the important point, if I had to sort of say, what is the most important difference between the two periods? I think, again, um, the United States is going to have to craft a diplomacy that's aimed not at the achievement of a decisive victory, but the pursuit of a strained cohabitation. Well, those are some noticeable differences between the Cold War and your last one in terms of alignment, you know, now that uh, I've been in Singapore for the last year. I mean, that that's pretty evident in uh, Southeast Asia as well, uh, including good friends, Singapore, who tell us very clearly we uh, want to balance our relationship. That kind of alignment, you know, you, you, it, 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 you don't see it like you saw in the Cold War. It's a very good, very good point. You know, your book talks a number of ways um, about it talks quite a bit about the U.S. approach to to China and the China challenge. But one of the most compelling arguments that I thought uh, you made that really resonated uh, with me is that uh, your point that the United States ought to be proactive rather than reactive in its foreign policy. And there's an increasing tendency, which you which you note, uh, for the U.S. to base a lot of its foreign policy actions around this single uh, meta-narrative um, and the need to outcompete and react to all the actions carried out by China. And, and I would add Russia to that as well. Um, you, t- you use an analogy in the book, which I liked about the Biden administration should figure out how to swim, it, swim its own race, uh, basically leveraging its own comparative advantages. So talk a little bit about, you know, where does the U.S. need to be more selective in its competition with China and Russia? In other words, where might the United States be overreacting to, to challenges from China? And uh, secondly, what, what are the key elements you think of an affirmative grand strategy that 
would be enabled by refocusing in a way from an exclusive focus on great power competition? So really, really um, important questions and difficult questions. And I, and I should say, you know, just before we, you know, we jumped on the call, you know, I, I was telling you how I, I kind of, I think of my book as a, hopefully my book is kind of a conversation starter uh, because it does leave a lot of questions uh, deliberately. It leaves a lot of questions unanswered because I, I felt that it would have been you know, presumptuous of me in this short book to uh, to claim that I have, you know, uh, that I have all the answers or even a, a fraction of the answers. So it, it's very much intended to be a conversation starter and and to grapple or to invite to invite uh, individuals to grapple with with the questions that you just posed. But a, a few a few uh, admittedly uh, impoverished thoughts uh, in response to those questions. You know, one, um, I do think that. Um, I worry. So, first of all, a U.S. foreign policy that is predicated or that is oriented too narrowly around responding to China and Russia uh, is necessarily going to to increasingly frame uh, any kind of cooperative pursuits as not only not just fool's errands at best, but potentially even as exhibitions of strategic weakness. And Mm -hmm. so, um, yes, great power competition, as I say in the book, it distills a very important a condition in contemporary geopolitics and a condition that is likely to endure. Um, but great power competition, um, it doesn't capture the totality of contemporary geopolitics. Uh, obviously, a, another critical aspect of contemporary geopolitics um, is the growing number and complexity of transnational challenges. And and I know that that point, it, it feels shopworn, it feels hackneyed, it feels mm-hmm. you know, kind of insipid, but I don't think that the uh, that you know that that proposition might be somewhat cliche doesn't at least you know, in my mind it doesn't diminish its underlying uh, persuasiveness um, mm-hmm. and so we do have to figure out how to reconcile the management of great power frictions with the mitigation of these transnational challenges that are again growing in number and and complexity so one I think focusing so so a U, U.S. foreign policy it needs to make sure that in its focus on mitigating great power frictions it doesn't discount. The, the imperative of not only managing transnational challenges, but also the imperative of finding ways of engaging with China and Russia to manage those challenges. And, and I should say just to point semantically, mm-hmm. um, you know, engagement, I, I think in sort of the contemporary political environment, uh, you know, words such as engagement and diplomacy, they, they almost have pejorative connotations. Uh, right. I think of engagement and diplomacy, I, I view them as Kind of value neutral terms. To me, engagement in diplomacy simply means that the United States cannot advance its vital national interests alone. It has to interact with other countries. Some of those countries will be allies. Some of those countries will be swing states. Some of those countries will be competitors. So engagement to me, diplomacy to me, simply means you have to talk with many countries in order to achieve your interests. Let me ask you on on that proposition number one, the transnational challenges. I I agree with you um, wholeheartedly. Um, you know, whether it's climate change, whether it's, you know, dealing with the current pandemic or future pandemics or nonproliferation issues, you know, you name it. There's a, a range of, uh, you know, these transnational global challenges, uh, which we, I think, you know, I was in the Bush administration. This was a key uh, feature of what we tried to do with China. Um, Obama administration as well. Uh, clearly, I think that dropped off in the Trump administration. The Biden team has put it forward. We heard Secretary of State Blinken uh, in his China speech lay out uh, areas where we should be cooperating. But the truth is, and you know it as well as I know it, sure, we're not cooperating. Sure. And we are, uh, and our track record of cooperation in those areas is, I think, very limited at best. 
Mm-hmm. So given the current, given the current sort of trajectory, uh, given the growing strategic competition, given the growing antagonism between the U.S. and China, how do we, you know, how does this, I mean, you, you said it's, it sounds hackneyed or trite because, you know, people talk about the importance of it, but part of the reason it sounds hackneyed is because we just haven't really been able to make any progress. And it's been an area of frustration for me as well. And I know the administration because it's, it's, as you know, it takes both U.S. and China, two countries to come together to compete. And we don't, the Chinese side uh, is really, seems to be playing an effort to uh, get some uh, pressure release release Mm -hmm. from its uh, core interests in order to cooperate on these transnational issues. So there's, there's a lot of frustration to go around, but you know, going forward, I mean, how it will it be possible for our two countries? Is there a path forward? And I know this is a difficult question, and I don't expect you to have the silver bullet, but I wanted to just get a sense how you think about that. Oh, ab- absolutely. And not only do I not have a silver bullet, I, uh, I I struggle with this question. If I'm being you know fully candid with you, I you know even as I even as I set forth these propositions in the book about the imperative of great power cooperation, even though I think that that imperative is self-evident in terms of actually fulfilling it, I, I completely agree with you that it's it's difficult to see. Uh, it's difficult to to find a basis for optimism. Um, you know, I will say, I mean, you mentioned, you know, Secretary Blinken's speech, and I think, I think it was a very important, I think it's a very important speech. Um, and there are a number of, you know, there are a number of propositions in, in Secretary Blinken's speech that I, that I think should guide uh, U.S. policy towards, you know, China. So first, the emphasis that you know, the contemporary geopolitical environment, you know, differs from that of the Cold War. The United States and China should not, uh, you know, shouldn't conceive of their relationship in sort of terms of a new Cold War. Um, and he uh, he explicitly enumerated, I think it was, I believe he enumerated six areas, six concrete areas in which the United States and China could cooperate, should cooperate. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's a, it, it was a very, I think it was a very, very important speech for, um, for, so I think kind of recalibrating the the relationship and kind of for setting the the tone for how the United States is going to to engage with China. Um, as far as the the practicalities, well, let me begin by just stating my concern. You know, my concern is that because the because this sort of this, both the structural dynamics of the relationship and also the the political dynamics in the structural trends in the relationship and then the political dynamics in both countries, both both I think militate against. Uh, sustained cooperation. You know, my biggest concern is: um, Will you need some kind of really, really grave, uh, grave crisis that kind of acts as sort of an emergency forcing function? Uh, and that's my biggest concern. Um, mm-hmm. I had, I had thought, uh, perhaps naively in retrospect, I had thought that the um, the World Health Organization's declaration that the coronavirus was now a, a pandemic. I thought that that emergency declaration. I thought that that declaration would occasion. Some some modicum of emergency coordination. Um, I still think I think that there is a possibility that as the externalities of Russia's invasion of Ukraine go, grow more pronounced, that perhaps there will be some kind of opportunity for the United States and and China to make common cause in mitigating those externalities. This is a point that I think Frank Gavin makes uh, persuasively and very thought provokingly in a, in a recent foreign affairs piece, uh, talking about um, how. Uh, great power crises breed great power opportunity. So I'm roughly paraphrasing the title of his piece. Yeah. So, um, so I, I candidly, I, I don't feel, I don't feel very optimistic right now. And I recognize that you know mm-hmm. it takes two to tango. And I think that 
you know, the United States, you know, based on, you know, conversations I've, I've had, and obviously based on conversations you're having, uh, there's no shortage of effort from, mm-hmm. from the administration. I mean, the administration has been uh, trying on a sustained basis, has been trying very persistently, but again, it takes two to tango. And the sense that, you know, the sense that you get is that a lot of overtures from the United States have been rebuffed. And mm-hmm. I think that that kind of dismissal is not only unhelpful, but in some cases it's very dangerous, particularly when when you think about, you know, the impoverishment of mill of mill to mill communications and you think about growing pressures across uh, the Taiwan Strait. So it takes two to tango. There have been sustained, I think, overtures from the United States. They need to be reciprocated. So um, I, yeah. I, I hope I hope that at a minimum, so, but I'm a congenital optimist. So, what what might be some potential, uh, you know, potential, you know, watch points? You know, one, it does look like, uh, you know, it looks like the administration is contemplating some some limited tariff relief on on Chinese consumer goods, and perhaps uh, if the administration goes through, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps there could be some basis for uh, a limited economic uh, dialogue. I think that any kind of limited economic dialogue, given that the United States and China possess the world's two largest economies, would be useful. Mm-hmm. I think that as the externalities of Russia's invasion of Ukraine grow more pronounced, I think that it will be increasingly in America and China's shared uh, national interest to have a conversation about uh, reining in further Russian aggression, making a renewed push for a diplomatic negotiated settlement to the war. So that's an opportunity, I think, perhaps for great power uh, diplomacy. Um, and I also think it's it seems that there's some you know, discussion about the potential for another another phone call uh, between President Biden and President Xi, uh, potentially even uh, an in-person a meeting on the sidelines of a, of a G20 summit. I think that those uh, those watch points are encouraging. So it's 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 slim pickings. Uh, I'll be candid. It's slim pickings. But right now, you know, given you know, you know, given how significantly the deterioration or given how significantly the relationship has deteriorated, I think that we need to calibrate our our expectations accordingly. And if there are opportunities, even for slim pickings, we should avail ourselves of them. Yeah. No, I th- that all makes sense to me. I I, I would just add to that. Um, you know, during during this time where the antagonism is quite high between the U.S. and China, you know, even just coming together to solve smaller problems in the bilateral sure. relationship uh, could lay a foundation that eventually could move on to some of these critical issues that you're talking about in terms of transnational challenges. And I think that that that's not a bad place to start either. Finding a problem-solving platform or mode between the two countries and just picking off the low-hanging fruit, if there is any. Uh, I know the, 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 the fruit is hanging higher these days, but nevertheless, <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. Um, we're, we're coming up on time, Ali. I could talk to you all day. Um, I, I enjoy talking to you about U.S.-China. You're, I find you um, you use quite a bit of, of common sense in, in your approach, and I appreciate that. Thank you, you. You laid out some principles of U.S. grand strategy in your book, uh, prioritizing domestic renewal, restoring, repurposing U.S. alliances and partnerships, pursuing transactional cooperation, which we just talked about, and rebalancing to the Asia-Pacific. Those overlap, frankly, with uh, what it seems the Biden administration is pursuing. Um, And you've talked about Secretary of State Blinken's speech. and I just want you to, to talk a little bit more about that using your principles as a benchmark. How do you see the Biden administration's approach so far? 
we're one and a half years into the administration, coming up on two. What are the key areas in your view in which the administration has done well? Uh, and and where have they fallen short? Maybe need to focus on on going forward. And we can make this the last question. Well, I've been really I've been really impressed by the extent to or the the success of the administration has had in maintaining its focus on Asia despite all of the convulsions elsewhere. So, I mean, you remember, so the administration unveiled its Indo-Pacific strategy on February 11th, and then less than two weeks later, Russia invaded Ukraine. And there was a lot of concern, understandably, that, you know, since, you know, since the turn of the century, every administration, you talked about, you know, serving in the Bush administration, the Bush administration came into office uh, wanting to rebalance U.S. foreign policy to Asia. And then, of course, the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001 uh, intruded. Uh, the Obama administration tried to to rebalance U.S. foreign policy. The Trump administration wanted to focus on on Asia. So, the desire to rebalance U.S. foreign policy to Asia is a bipartisan undertaking. It's a long-standing undertaking, um, and I think the administration has really, um, I think, I think has really. And again, the the jury is still out. We're we're about a year and a half into the administration, but I I think it's quite telling that the single most the single most productive month for. Uh, U.S. diplomacy vis-a-vis Asia occurred while the Russia-Ukraine war was raging. It occurred in May. So if you look at May, what happened in May? We had the the U.S. ASEAN summit in in Washington. We had U.S. participation in the fourth meeting of of the Quad leaders in Tokyo. We had the unveiling of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. We had the U.S. Uh, the Biden administration's nomination of uh, a U.S. ambassadorial position, ASEAN, which is is a position that has been vacant for the past five years. So it's quite telling that even though the Russia-Ukraine war was raging during May, mm-hmm. May was the single most productive month for for uh, U.S. diplomacy in Asia. So I think that the administration is, and it and it's been following up. It's been following up uh, this uh, last month, late last month, with the uh, unveiling of the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. So. I think that the administration is uh, is doing the best that it can, and I think has achieved quite a you know has registered quite a bit of success in maintaining its focus on on Asia. Uh, I think a critical litmus test, of course, will be the extent to which the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework will uh, succeed in shoring up America's economic staying power in the region. So I, I think that's sort of a critical watch point. Uh, and I do like the emphasis. I shouldn't say like. I think it's it's. I think I view it as foundational. The the administration's emphasis on domestic renewal. Uh, domestic renewal is not ancillary to external competitiveness. Domestic renewal is a precondition for external competitiveness. Mm-hmm. And so um, the the United States has more work to do on that front. I think that a lot of, uh, even our, leaving aside our competitors, I think that even well-wishers, um, they are concerned about America's growing political polarization and the real viciousness of that polarization. They're concerned about growing income and wealth inequality. They're concerned about gun violence. They're concerned about the ongoing uh, ravages of of COVID nineteen. So I think that even a lot of our well wishers, um, they're not. They're concerned about the um, the perilous state of our domestic politics. The the growing number and severity of our internal socioeconomic challenges. And I think that many of them are also concerned about a fundamental unpredictability of U.S. foreign policy. And, you know, the, as the president often says, President Biden often says that when he engages with, when he and, and Vice President Harris engage with their counterparts abroad and say that America is back, the response they often get is, we're glad that you're back, but for how long? Yeah. And and the Biden administration and top Biden administration officials um, they can't definitively answer that question because, of course, we don't know what's going to happen in 2024 or in 2028. So there's a lot of work to be done 
Um, there's a lot of work to be done to ensure that IPEF uh, really, really uh, is sort of a shot in the arm for America's economic resilience. There's a lot of work to be done to demonstrate that the United States can get its own house in order uh, internally and that it can renew the power of its democratic example. So there's a lot of work on the drawing board, but I think if you look at uh, the administration's continued focus on Asia, if you look at the range of initiatives that it's unveiled, uh, if you look at the emphasis that it's placed on domestic renewal, I think it's done uh, a lot of tremendous work, but obviously there's a lot of work that remains to be done. Well, that's a terrific answer, and I agree 100% with it, and I uh, have written on this, I think, um, including a, a, an article recently in the, the Singapore Straits Times about you know, it seems to me, I agree with you, the elements are right. Uh, they've got the right elements. Yeah. Um, and I think domestic renewal, I agree with you. It's if, look, it, if we don't get our act together at home, uh, it's not really possible to have an effective foreign policy across the board, not just dealing with China or Asia. Uh, and that's a critical piece to it. I appreciate the Biden administration correcting the problem the Trump administration had, which was not working with our allies and partners. That's an essential piece to it. Uh, so I think the the elements are there. Um, it's now the implementation yes. and, and doing it consistently. But as you said, the big elephant in the room that I hear in Southeast Asia is, okay, this is all fine and this sounds good to us, but who's coming after Biden? And is that going to result in a pendulum swing in the other direction. Exactly. Uh, phrase, phrase that you used earlier on in our discussion. And so it's really up to the to the to the United States now to show that it can be consistent uh in its uh commitment and its approach to Asia. Um and I think the pillars are right as you've laid out. Ali, thank you. Uh your book is terrific. And again, uh the title America's Great Power Opportunity. Um, I, I encourage folks to pick it up as uh, soon as possible and uh, really appreciate you joining the China in the World podcast and look forward to having you back. Paul, thank you so much for having me. A real, real honor and privilege. Thank you.